As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the 13th episode of the Professional Book Nerds podcast. Um, I'm here with Adam. How are you doing, Adam? I'm good. How about you, Joe? I'm good. So tell us about today's episode. Sure. So I interviewed Lisa Demore, who is a author, and she also has her own psychotherapy practice. And it's actually kind of cool. She is a local author. We're here in Cleveland, and she lives in a suburb right outside of Cleveland. I don't want to be one of those people who gives you, like directions on where right. she is, but she's a local <laughs> author. And so she actually was in, in the office and we got a chance to, to chat with her. She wrote a book called Untangled and it's all about the seven different stages that teenage girls go through as they're growing up. And so for parents, I would imagine mm-hmm. would get the most out of it, basically explaining what their children are going through and, and why it's okay if they're reacting certain ways that they are. Um, obviously, and I make this joke with Lisa and the in the actual interview, I am a male who is young enough to not have teenage children. So I originally didn't think I would be that interested in the book, mm-hmm. but it actually made me think a lot about the emotions I went through as a teenager and um, realizing that what I was going through was okay. And then well, all of my friends who are females, you know, just kind of getting a better understanding. Right. Um, so yeah, it was incredibly interesting. She is fascinating. Um, I don't know when she had time to write the book, and we talk about Sounds that a little like bit. like she was a very busy woman. <laughs> yeah, she. in addition to having her own psychotherapy practice and writing this book, she also writes for the New York Times. She travels both nationally and internationally to give speeches, and she just she's a fascinating person. And forgetting the having the time to write this book, I was just very appreciative that she had the time to even come visit us in the office, we caught her on like the one day that she wasn't traveling <laughs> around the country. So, um, yeah, she was fantastic, um, which I know I say a lot, but she was incredibly interesting. And we talked a lot about, like I said, her practice. And then I asked a few questions that um, were more so for myself right. that I hope you guys will enjoy. Um, yeah, she was really, really interesting. And I think everyone will be kind of fascinated by all of the different emotions and things that she touches on and just the way that she speaks so professionally and eloquently about, you know, being a teenage female and raising teenage females and how to handle it. It's just, yeah, it was really interesting. Yeah, no, it was an interesting interview to listen to. And as someone who was a teenage girl, it definitely <laughs> makes me want to read a book. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> yeah. So I think everyone, like I said, I think everyone is really going to enjoy this interview. She, um, was wonderful. She's very charming. Um, I hope that she comes back uh, again and just has a conversation with yeah. all of us. And if she writes another book, I you know 
would love to have her back on the podcast. So as we always mention, you guys can reach us at feedback at overdrive.com if you want to send us some emails. Jill and I read all of those. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter and Pinterest. Um, we don't have a ton of book recommendations for this particular episode, but you can always find uh, recommendations on overdrive.com and just all across our social networks. So um, anything else from you? I don't think so. Just right. I hope they enjoy the episode. All right. Well, thank you everyone for listening and enjoy this interview with Lisa Demore on the Professional Book Nerds podcast. Hi, everyone. This is Adam from Team Overdrive, and welcome to this edition of the Professional Book Nerds podcast. Today, I am joined by Dr. Lisa Demore, director of the internationally renowned Laurel Schools Center for Research on Girls. She maintains a private psychotherapy practice, consults and speaks internationally, writes a column for the New York Times Motherload blog, and is also a New York Times bestselling author of Untangled, Guiding Teenage Girls Through the Seven Transitions into Adulthood. First off, congratulations. Thank you very much. And thank you so much for joining us today. I am delighted to be here. I have to say, just reading through everything about you, you might be the busiest person <laughs> I have ever met. So we really appreciate it that you were able to find some time to actually come in, in the office and chat with us. But how did you find time to write this book? Oh, um... <laughs> Well, you know, this book is very much the product of 25 years of thinking. Mm -hmm. I started taking care of teenagers when I was a teenager myself. Mm -hmm. I started doing research for the Yale Child Study Center summer after my sophomore year of college. Oh, wow. And that research project involved interviewing teenagers mm -hmm. about diagnostic information. So I was 19 at the time. And I think that's when I would mark my beginning of sort of professional engagement around teenagers. Right. And I have thought about them, studied them, taken care of them in my private practice, mm -hmm. researched them ever since. So when it came to writing, it came pretty quickly because mm -hmm. I've been building up thoughts for a long, long time. Sure. Before I wrote this book, I actually co-authored two other books mm -hmm. that are on the academic side. And one of those is a college textbook mm -hmm. in abnormal psychology. And the scale of a college textbook is enormous. Yes. I was one of two authors, and my half of the manuscript was 800 pages long. Oh, wow. So I really developed my capacity to write quickly <laughs> <laughs> while working on I that bet. book. Yeah, I was going to say 800 yeah. pages. Wow. That's a lot. Yeah. And, and so I, um, and, and we did two editions of that book, my co-author, Jen Hansel, and I. Mm -hmm. So I would say the combination of having worked with teenagers for a long, long time, and then having another part of my career where I've written in great volume sure. um, came together nicely that I could put this down on paper pretty efficiently. So it's safe to say that when you started writing it, you at least knew what you were getting into when it came to publishing a book. You had an idea of what, what to expect. I did, certainly on the writing side. Mm -hmm. One of the things that's been a real education for me is how different commercial nonfiction publishing is mm -hmm. than textbook publishing or university press publishing, which sure. is the other publishing I have done. Mm -hmm. So on that, I've had a very steep learning curve. But in terms of thinking at book length mm -hmm. and writing in that scope, yeah. that um, those muscles have been built up over time. Nice. So I do want to dive in a little bit uh, into your book. Uh, you mentioned you're on CBS This Morning recently, and you mentioned that one of the biggest challenges facing teenage girls is kind of the expectations in general that they face. Um, they can sometimes get a bad rap just 
because they're teenagers. Can you maybe expand on this just a little bit for our listeners, kind of let them know what you're referring to? Sure, sure. So one of the things that I am always taken aback by is how people respond when they learn that I'm a psychologist who takes care of girls, Mm -hmm. especially teenage girls. And people say things to me along the lines of, oh my gosh, they're crazy, (laughs) you know, or... How do you do that? You know, I'm so glad I don't have daughters. Right. You know, and somehow teenage girls have become surprisingly polarizing Mm -hmm. in our culture. Uh, There are people like me who just think they're fantastic and are eager to advocate for them. And there are a lot of people who I think are pretty nervous around teenage girls or don't know what to expect or feel cautious. And so part of why I wrote this book was to give us a different way to talk about teenage girls Mm -hmm and to try to bring order to what seems like chaos in adolescence for girls. One of the major takeaways that at least I got from Untangled is the importance of, and the quote-unquote, understanding from a parent's standpoint. Uh, It's essential to both understand why teenage girls are displaying their their emotions and, and the way that they're displaying them, and also to help them understand that what they're going through is is okay. It's it's normal to be going through these emotions. Is that, is that something, is that kind of the idea? Absolutely. Absolutely. I would say that, you know, as people get into the book, I think they'll find two things. One is I actually am not in the business of telling people how to raise their kids. Mm -hmm. I think that it's a very personal thing, raising one's own children. And there's a lot of variables at play that make it a highly specific endeavor. Mm -hmm. But I am in the business of helping people understand their Mm -hmm. teenagers, and teenagers work in patterns. Mm -hmm. And the things they do make sense if you've seen them in the broad scope Mm -hmm. and watch them repeat girl to girl to girl. Mm -hmm. So in that way, I was hoping to help parents see sort of what's underneath behavior that might not make sense. Mm -hmm. But somebody described the book to me this way, and I thought it was pretty accurate. That 80% of the book is me saying, okay, this weird thing your teenage daughter does, here's why it's okay. And this other weird thing your teenage daughter does, here's why it's okay. And, and one of the things that freed me up a lot in writing the book is that at the end of every chapter, I have a section called When to Worry. Mm-hmm. And that's where I say, okay, here's where it's not okay. Right. You know, here's where if your daughter's a very emotional person, here are all the normal ways you're going to see that play out. Mm-hmm. Okay, but if we get into this territory, we're past normal and someone needs to step in. And I think that's really important uh, because I think it's okay to have, like you said, 80% of your book saying these things, these things are okay because I don't have children personally, but growing up as a young kid, in your mind, you always assume my parents know what's right. Even if you get mad at them as a child, at the end, in your mind, you're assuming like, all right, they know what they're talking about. When in reality, sometimes for the parents, they're just as lost as the children are. Um there was a part of your book that it's called Harnessing Emotion. And maybe this is me asking for therapy since you're sure, here today. Absolutely. Uh, so in my own mind, and again, you can tell me if I'm completely off base here. I've always thought of emotions and life experiences sort of like a cup of water. Uh, when you're young, it, the cup is much smaller. So it takes a lot less to fill it up completely. Uh, something that always comes to mind is I always remember when I was younger, Car rides seem to take forever, even if it was 45 minutes, and now I can drive to Columbus and back, and to me, it's just it's just driving. It is what it is. Um, as a teen, you know, the, the cup is still very small. There's still not a lot of life experience, and so, but it's the first time you're really experiencing emotions, at least for me, that were very new, and they were really big. Um, the first time you broke up with someone that you were certain that you loved. Um, the first time you got in a best friend, a fight with a best friend. Um, and so these events kind of feel huge and impactful and 
they're big because at your that moment in your life that they're the biggest emotions you've ever experienced. So I think where having understanding parents is so essential is having them not dismiss those feelings because a parent knows that you know, paying your taxes and paying your mortgage might be more stressful in real life than having a fight with your friend. But I think it's, would it, would it be off base to say that that is something that's really important for a parent to kind of understand is this, the, the new kind of like breadth of these emotions. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that, um, probably some of the reason that people say the things they do to me about teenage girls mm -hmm. is that they're a little blown away by the scale of girls' feelings. <laughs> right. Like they just seem really dramatic, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of the time. And what we know is that emotion really changes in adolescence. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I articulate in the book is that we actually have new neurology that explains this. Mm -hmm. And what we know is that the brain remodels through adolescence. It gets an upgrade. Mm -hmm. But it gets that upgrade in the same order in which it developed originally, right. which is from back to front, mm -hmm. from the lower centers to the upper centers. So it turns out that the emotions are in the lower centers <laughs> and the emotional controls are in the upper centers. Sure. So what we know about teenagers is that their emotional reactions are very, very intense because that part of the brain has just gotten a big fat upgrade. Right. But their capacity to govern those, to slow those emotions down, to get some perspective on those has not yet been upgraded. Mm -hmm. So girls can feel overwhelmed by their feelings. They feel like these feelings come out of left field. They're not sure what's going on. Mm -hmm. Parents can wonder if there's something really wrong with their daughter because when she was 10, she did not freak out mm -hmm. when she couldn't find the jeans she wanted to wear. And when she's 13, <laughs> she's a puddle on the floor because she can't find <laughs> the right jeans. And again, the thrust of Untangled is just to give everybody some perspective and mm -hmm. some understanding on this. I do offer parents some advice, you know, some things they might try to say, some ways they might try to... Um, be of use to their daughters and not overreact when she's overreacting. But I am amazed as a psychologist by how useful it is just for people to have understanding. Mm -hmm. I would say, you know, you had mentioned I, I write for the New York Times, and, and when I think about the pieces I've written for them that have really gotten a lot of traction, mm -hmm. it's not the advice pieces, and I do often give advice. Right. It's the pieces where I take a uh, very common dynamic between parent and teenager. Mm -hmm. um, the most recent one was about eye rolling. Mm -hmm. And I try to pull back the veil and describe what's happening inside the girl who's doing this. Mm -hmm. And I, I really don't offer advice. I just offer understanding. Mm -hmm. And my experience is that when parents know what's happening, when they have a feel for the dynamics at play, mm -hmm. they can then make their own new choices right. about what they want to do with their daughter in that moment. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, I would say I try to use my writing in the way that we use good psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. You know, good psychologists don't tell people what to do. Right. We help people understand the dynamics at play in the areas where they're getting stuck. Mm -hmm. And when you understand those dynamics, it's amazing the options that become available that did not feel available before. Mm -hmm. There's another section in, in your book, which is contending with adult authority. And you discuss some really interesting ways to deal with teens who come home and, and talk about either their friends that might be doing something dangerous or someone that they see doing something illegal. I really love the idea of focusing on the risks instead of the action and, and the whole, like, well, what would happen if you get caught? Can you maybe just go into a little bit more detail about that for our listeners? Because I found it really fascinating. Absolutely. So that's chapter four. And I mm -hmm. will confess that's my favorite chapter. Mm -hmm. and, and it's called Contend Contending with Adult Authority, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And that's a really 
powerful part of being a teenager is when you realize the grown-ups might be making a lot of this up. <laughs> you know, that they have a lot of rules that don't make sense. So which of these right. rules do make sense? And I think it becomes especially dicey around our rules around safety. Mm-hmm. That we, I think if there's anything that keeps parents up at night when they have teenagers is they're afraid something bad's going to happen. And they're not crazy. I mean, we do see amped up risk-taking in adolescents. We do see more accidents. We do see more bad things happen mm-hmm. to teenagers. And so I think that can inspire parents who are scared to take a very top-down approach. Mm-hmm. You know, to say, if I catch you drinking or, you know, don't let me smell smoke on you or things right. like that. And I think it comes from a loving place. But I think actually for an authority-questioning teenager, it can almost be provocative, mm-hmm. you know, to have an adult lay out rules in that way. Right. So I would say around safety, it's better to, to avoid the top-down approach and to instead see oneself as siding with one's teenager against the risk. Okay. I think um, it may be much more useful for parents to say things along the lines of, okay, look, you're probably going to find yourself at a party with drinking. Mm-hmm. I love you. I don't want anything bad to happen to you. What are you thinking about how you're going to keep yourself safe in those circumstances? Right. That that approach engages the maturing and thoughtful part of the teenager and makes it clear that, it's not that the adult is trying to stand between the teenager and the fun, mm-hmm. which I think only makes the fun that much more Absolutely. seductive, yeah. right? But it's that the adult is trying to stand next to the teenager and observe the risks before the teenager and recruit the best part of the teenager into thinking about how to keep herself safe in the face mm-hmm. of those. That, to me, feels like it fits with what we know from the research, which is that teens live up to expectations and they live down to expectations. Mm-hmm. And I think when we talk to them as if they're going to be out of control and they need to be controlled by us, I think they try to match that expectation. And when we talk to them like they are growing and smart and thoughtful young people, we know from the research they step up to that. That's such a, I guess, intelligent way of thinking about it because being someone who obviously was a teenager like we all were, you're absolutely right. That's the first time in your life where you start to think, maybe I know better than my parents. And the odds are you don't, but it's the first time that you really do start to feel like they might not have all the answers. And so if a parent gives you that definitive, like, don't do this, odds are you're going to say, maybe I really do want to do that. Yeah. Well, and one of the things I write about is half the time we are making it up. You know, (laughs) I think, and I write about this in the book, you know, there was a day where, I, you know, I have two daughters myself, and one of my daughters, who's you know an early adolescent, went to go write a reminder on the back of her hand mm-hmm. with a pen. And I said to her, oh, don't do that. Don't write on your hand. And she said, why not? And I thought, there's no reason there's why no. not. <laughs> Actually, there's a lot of reasons to do it. Yeah. There's zero reasons not to do it. And I think that we can point to millions of those things. I mean, don't go out with wet hair. Don't listen to the music too mm-hmm. loud. I mean, all of these things that yeah. really... They're arbitrary. Mm-hmm. And teenagers quickly figure this out. Yeah. And I think it doesn't help us to just have more rules mm-hmm. to try to counteract their doubts about the rules that aren't so smart. Well, I can say that as a 30-year-old adult, I still write on my hand. So that's, I do too. that's something I never <laughs> grew out of. So maybe if, it, other, maybe if it was just my parents saying, just because it's kind of gross and you might want to keep your hands clean, I might have had a better chance of not doing it as an adult. No. But, Go for it. Um, do it. So... A part of growing up as a teenager that wasn't around for either of us is social media. 
Uh, it's something where I spend every day in it as an adult, and I'm still nervous about the things I'm going to say, and I worry representing a large company on you know on social media every single day. Oh, people like to give teenagers a hard time for being addicted to social yeah. media, to being on their phones at all time. Although, admittedly, that's not just teens. If you walk around really anywhere, you'll see people with their head down and never looking up at all. Um, something you said that really struck me as interesting is it's not the social media that they're addicted to. It's more of the connections. Would that be yeah. the yeah. right way to describe it? So, you know, there is no question that social media has been game-changing mm -hmm. for what it means to be a teenager and what it means to raise a teenager. Yeah. And we're at this really interesting juncture where everybody who's raising a teenager right now didn't have social media, and all the teenagers did. Right. Right? I mean, we can't sort of pull back on our own experience and how our own parents handled it sure. to know what to do. So this is a, it's a fascinating moment developmentally. I think that we still can position ourselves in a place of understanding if we see the parallels between what we wanted as teenagers and how they use social media themselves. Mm -hmm. So for example, um, researcher Dana Boyd, who looks at this very carefully, has this great line, which is, they're not addicted to the technology, they're addicted to each other. Mm -hmm. And and I think it's really helpful to remember, we were too. Right. Right. I mean, I got home, took the phone, pulled it into my room, mm -hmm. and list it was on it until somebody made me right. get off. Right. <laughs> that is standard practice for yeah, adolescents. I can. I was gonna say for me, it was a little bit later. It was um, AOL Instant Messenger, uh -huh. and I remember putting up away messages. And I grew up in a house of three older siblings, and I remember being so upset if they would log me off of Instant Messenger. And I'm like, "Well, did anyone send me any messages? Right. I, what did I miss?" Right. And I don't know. That, I, that might not even just be a teenager thing. No, I but... think the idea of needing to be connected. Absolutely. I mean, do you remember, well, you're probably, you're younger than I am. I mean, when call waiting came around, oh, this yeah. changed everything, mm -hmm. right? So I think it's easy to, you know, kind of critique teenagers. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think there's something about them that invites us to do that. Right. But I think if we remember, no, we, call waiting changed everything because then you could be on the phone all night and your parents <laughs> couldn't kick you off because you would know if a call came of course. in. And I think similarly... You know, one of the things that does concern me and I think is very, very different landscape is, you know, access to things like pornography, mm -hmm. right? And and we know that teenagers access pornography and we know that what's out there is really, really, really destructive. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think it creates a parenting problem we have not had before. Right. But the impulse, the interest, mm -hmm. teenagers have been interested in pornography or at least interested in adult sex right. and curious about it forever and ever and ever, you know? And so it used to be that there was one kid on the block who had a Playboy and everybody went and looked <laughs> sure, at it. Yeah. You know, that that isn't the case anymore. But the interest, the, the wish to know more about adult sexuality, that's not new to this mm -hmm. generation. So I think as parents are trying to figure out how to parent in a digital environment, the more they can focus on the kind of timeless impulses that are driving the behavior, the ones that they had in common with their teenagers, yeah. And then think about, well, how do those impulses play out mm -hmm. in this new environment? I think then they're better positioned to have empathy yeah. and also then direct the use of the technology because it gets to the thing you raise, which is, unfortunately, today's teenagers leave a permanent record of where they've been and right. what they've done, mm -hmm. right? I mean, you and I at least have the benefit of all the goofy things and inappropriate <laughs> things we did in yeah. adolescence. They're gone. Mm -hmm. and, and we have to help teenagers with that. I actually... I, I speak with, um, with high school kids relatively frequently about internet safety. Again, being someone who's a social media specialist, people will look to me as 
can you give these kids advice? And what you touched on is exactly what I tell kids all the time is everything you put on social media is there forever. Even if you delete it, someone can screen grab it. You know, if I was in high school and I wrote a girl a note telling her that I thought she was beautiful and I loved her and all these cheesy things, she might show her friends and they might make fun of me for a week, but then they're going to throw that note away and it's gone. It's gone. But, you know, and something that I always emphasize is putting threats on, on social media. You know, the, the internet doesn't understand sarcasm, even though seemingly 85% of the internet is sarcasm. Mm -hmm. um, so do you ever discuss in your practice when you're talking with teens and even their parents as well, the importance of dealing with social media, not only with having an understanding what teens might be doing on there, but really emphasizing the permanence of everything that's on there. You know, it, it does come up absolutely because mm -hmm. it just creates this indelible record. Right. And and that you know, we none of us want our kids at thirty five dealing with something that happened at fifteen. Yeah. Right? I mean that that just feels really unfair. Mm -hmm. um, but it's interesting. I haven't thought about it in this way before. But you know, one of the things that when we I also take care of younger kids in my practice. You know, when we have toddlers who mm -hmm. are hitting, you know, we we talk about look. The impulse is fine. The expression of it is not. You know, mm -hmm. the feel like you're allowed to be angry. Right. You're not allowed to hit. Exactly. Right. So it's not that we're concerned about you can't. You can be angry, but you just have to express it in a particular way. And I think we should do the same things with teenagers around social media. You know, you're allowed to be mad at that mm -hmm. kid in your class. You can't express it by getting online right. and causing a whole lot of trouble that is going to follow her and you mm -hmm. for three months. Um, you're allowed to be curious about adult sexuality. Not okay to go find stuff that's going to really, you know, be unseeable, right. you know, after you've seen it. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's helpful um, to separate those two things out. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the the feeling behind it or the impulse that's driving it, which may be completely legitimate and understandable, from the venue in which that becomes pursued. Mm -hmm. um, and, and when we do that, I feel like we're also able to stay connected to teenagers because mm -hmm. I think that as soon as adults start saying you need to get off your phone or don't do that on your phone or you know all of those things I feel like we quickly become the teacher in the Peanuts cartoon <laughs> you know the wah, 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 of course right yeah. whereas if we're saying look we get why you're doing it you just can't do it there mm -hmm. I think we can maintain some connection yeah all right on a lighter note I, I want to mention I found your section about planning for the future and procrastinating, really, really entertaining um, because the way that you talk about handling this type of situation was exactly how my parents did it with me. So I, I want to let you kind of share with everyone your thoughts on dealing with teens and procrastination because I don't want to give it away because I literally was laughing just oh, thinking good. of my parents doing it to me. So I'm going to let you kind of share sure. your thoughts and kind of a suggestion on how to deal with teens who like to procrastinate. Yeah. So and procrastinating is highly common in Absolutely. humans, sure. humans, mm -hmm. and then also teenage humans. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's really stressful for a parent to stand there and watch your kid put off work and right. you know exactly what's coming, which mm -hmm. is a crisis and an yeah. all-nighter. And I think that it really, um, there's a very loving impulse to jump in there and start saying, don't you think you should start that paper? And come on, I'll help you start the paper and things like that. And I think that the problem then is that the conflict becomes between the parent and the teenager, right? The parent who wants the work to get done and the teenager who's resisting the parent. Sure. And that when there's a conflict like that, it's much better if it's between the teenager and the teenager. So I think the way I write it in the book is, you know, you want to have the conflict between the part of the teenager that wants to get the work done and the part of the teenager that wants to watch reruns, <laughs> right. right? And so if the parent takes up the let's get it done part, 
then the teenager gets to hold on to the, yeah, but I want to watch Leland's part, <laughs> right. right? And that's a fight that can go on all day. And and I do think, and I write about this, you know, it's so much, if you're going to have a conflict, so much easier to have an outside conflict than an inside conflict. Mm-hmm. But our job as parents is to make it an inside conflict. So what I advise is, you know, if, if a parent is watching their teenage daughter, you know, have a total binge of Grey's Anatomy when everybody knows full well that there's a paper due the next day, a parent can say, look, you and I both know you have a paper due tomorrow, and this is not going to work well for you. I'm going to bed. Mm-hmm. I hope you sort it out. And let the chips fall where they may. I literally was seeing my parents say that <laughs> as I was reading it because I, that my mom was a teacher for 39 years, so she was hyper aware of things are due. You need to get these things done. But she and my dad both would look at me and like, wow, that sucks that you have to write that 10-page paper by 8 a.m. Have a great night. Yeah. And like I think the way that you talk about that, because there there are much heavier things to discuss, like you said, you know, talking about sexuality and, and are your, your friends drinking and making these decisions where you need to be aware of it ahead of time. And But then there's some things like procrastination, not getting your work done, that the best lesson is to just, yeah, you have to suffer the consequences for that. Absolutely. And if you, you know, are dealing with a teenager who the next morning has not slept all night, you can say, so maybe next week you'll make a different choice, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. and just continue to leave that in the teenager's lap. And But one of the things you're also mentioning, and this was really important to me, a lot of the books that get published about teenagers are about the outer limits of things going quite poorly, mm-hmm. you know, very depressed or cutting or yeah. in trouble in other ways. Right. And I am thrilled those books are out there for the families who need them. Mm-hmm. But raising a teenager under normal conditions Mm -hmm. is very stressful and involves a lot of conflict. And I am so grateful to Random House that they took this book and let me write this book about the day-in, day-out garden variety stresses of Mm -hmm. raising teenagers because there's not enough out there for parents about that. And there's just there's so much great information available and untangled. You You discuss everything from understanding that it's okay that your daughter might want more privacy to addressing how to handle teens who want to start dating and even addressing things like nutrition and, and how to eat healthy and how to discuss it with you know, with your teenage daughter is the proper way to, to say, you know, maybe we should look at some other things and what they're doing to your body. I really can't recommend this highly enough, even for people who don't have kids um, or who might be a male. Again, I'm 30, I don't have kids, and I am a male, but I really think it helped almost it helped me understand better the emotions I was going through as a teen and even now like I'll joke around with my parents but I really think this book helped me understand their side of things as well so I want to recommend this to everyone out there um I have a few questions not related to the book but I just want to get that out there because it is fantastic and thank you very appreciative that you 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 wrote it and, and came and chatted with us um so as everyone out there knows, and as you're aware, we are a library company here at Overdrive. And I always like to ask all of our authors, do you have any first or favorite memories of any time that you spent at the library or, or taking your kids there? Did anything that you remember or think fondly of when it comes to the library world? That is a great question. Um, I think my most recent contact with libraries that has felt really meaningful to me was when my kids were little, little. Mm-hmm. And... Um, we're, we live in Shaker Heights, Ohio, and there's you know great libraries in our community, and toddlers are wonderful. It's also really really hard to be a parent home with a toddler all day, right? You know, and and because of my work, I'm very flexible, so I was able to actually to be home with both of my daughters a lot when mm-hmm. they were little, and 
I can't tell you how I would white knuckle my way until the library was open and the play and learn station was open <laughs> sure. and I could I could go over there and actually have a conversation with a grown up while <laughs> my toddler and their toddler, you know, played around in the lovely activities that they made available. They still make available. Mm-hmm. Um and and I've actually got some great friends uh, that I picked up at the library, yeah. you know, who I think were equally um, ready for some adult company. And <laughs> so I I just have so much respect for libraries as as places of community and service, you know, at so many different age levels. Uh, they're so valuable. Yeah. And then in the few moments of free time that you yeah. do have, which I know are few and far between, uh, what types of things do you like to read? Are are you more of a kind of stay focused in your field kind of person or you do like to kind of clear your mind and read something completely different um i, I spend a lot of time reading research articles and mm-hmm. i will tell you that takes up a, probably 90 percent of my reading imagine. diet um which they're not that exciting mm-hmm. <laughs> they're pretty boring but i'm actually really particular about writing not content so I'm very much interested in finding the best writers I can find. Mm-hmm. So I, the things I've read most recently, um, Winston Churchill's My Early Life. Yes. Extraordinarily beautiful. Mm-hmm. There's a guy named Richard Broadhead who's the president of Duke. Okay. I read his academic writing because it is some of the most beautiful and clear writing mm-hmm. I've ever seen. Um, I hijack the New Yorker the second it comes in the house, <laughs> and I read anything Anthony Lane or Emily Nussbaum writes. Okay. I read those things. So I... I'm more interested in people who turn phrases Mm -hmm. and pack into sentences meanings that just unfurl Mm -hmm. uh, and kind of tickle your neurons as you read than I am in any particular topic. Okay. And so this question is actually just for me. This is, I feel like anytime I had someone who has a specialty that I have a question that is very much related to, I want to ask them. So the movie Inside Out. Yes. From a professional standpoint, what are your thoughts on it? Because as a person who just was watching it and not ashamed to admit crying my eyes out a lot of the time, (laughs) from a professional standpoint, how close is that to a teenage brain? And do you have thoughts of like, were you watching it or did you see it and say like, that's not how that happens? Or I just would love your thoughts on on the movie, if, yeah. if you have any. Well, I do. So um, I actually got to see an early version of the movie because I wrote about a piece. I wrote a piece about it for the New York Times. Right. Um, I will tell you, I got to see the movie the night before the piece was due. So I watched it in sort of half a panic because <laughs> I had to write that night right. something that went in the next day. Um, so I, I think I need to go see it again. But here's what I loved about that movie that it normalized sadness and anger as essential and normative functions. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that we have somehow come to a place in a culture, in our culture, where we're pretty uncomfortable about the dark feelings. We don't really like them. We want people to be happy. We think parenting should be a joyous romp. Mm -hmm. And the reality is sadness is part of life, anger is part of life, and they're protective and they're normative, and they give us really useful feedback on how our life is going. And so... I think my favorite part about that movie is that um, sadness is the hero. Yeah, I completely agree. And I can't imagine having to try and write something after watching that. <laughs> I literally was just like a sobbing mess for the last 20 minutes of that. So more power to you to be able to put something to collect your thoughts at all. That's very impressive. Um, I just have one more question for you. What do you hope readers take away from Untangled? Well, 
it's funny. I, I like the title of the book very, very much, and, and I think it's the right title. And if somebody said, you can't have that title, you have to have another title, I think the title would be, It's Not About You. Mm-hmm. Because I think that what is so hard about parenting a teenager is that it feels so personal. Mm-hmm. They pull their parents in, they push their parents away, they do say things that feel and are highly personal. And the thrust of this book is to give parents a different perspective on adolescence, right. to see all of that behavior as part of something bigger their daughter is trying to do, mm-hmm. And to have a place to stand from which to observe that. So I guess my major takeaway would be this is not as personal as it feels. Mm -hmm. She's got a job to do. You're just part of that job. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate you taking the time to come visit us, even though you are a very, very busy woman. So thank you very much. This has been great. Thank you for having me. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can add these titles to their collections and marketplace. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.